0: You're listening to the Cyberwire network, powered by N2K.
1: The ransomware market has changed a lot since 2016. And so I really, really wanted to kind of give an update to, to kind of what's happening and get it in a condensed, understandable format.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Alan Liska from Recorded Future. We're going to be talking about the evolution of ransomware and his new book, Ransomware. Understand. Prevent. Recover. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we have a little bit of follow-up here. Uh, Someone wrote in to us. What do they have to say?
2: They have a question. It's Joan, and uh, she has a question. She says, hello, my dad received a call supposedly from MasterCard Fraud Department. The scammers asked him for the last four of his social security number, which is a common means of identifying people in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Uh, and also asked for a photo and video of him. Why are they asking for the photo and video? Any thoughts? Dave, I have my thoughts. What's your thought?
0: Well, I think, uh, first of all, these folks want to gather as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the photo and video, I think there are some uh, fraud departments who ask for this, ask for a photo or a video to um, uh, you know align with your license, your driver's license or something like that. I imagine this could be used to Mock up a driver's license or something like that.
2: What do you think? Right, I don't think this is actually from a Mastercard fraud department. I don't think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: you know, you don't you don't give out information on an on an outbound call or an inbound call, rather. So, Joan, one thing I'd say is make make sure your father listens to this show uh, or other shows like it. Another thing, as far as the photo and the video is, be a lot of like Dave was saying, a lot of companies are starting to ask for these kind of things as identification. It may be the case that these guys are targeting your dad because they've already built a significant dossier on him. They already have a lot of information about him and they're looking to flesh that out with a uh with the last four of his social security number and uh of a photo and a video so that when it comes time for them to try to break into a uh, bank account of his, they have those assets available. Uh if your dad did provide those things, uh it's it's time to probably take some measures. Uh about that. If he didn't, you're probably okay. Uh, but I would still, still put some credit monitoring in place and, uh, possibly talk to any banks that he has accounts with and let them know that he's being targeted just so that they're on the lookout for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Better safe than
0: sorry for sure. It is an odd request. And as you point out, uh, you know, anything inbound, be wary of, um, Absolutely, call them back. Call them yep. back.
2: <laughs> it's always okay to hang up and call back. Uh, call them back on a number that you know is good by looking it up on the website.
0: Right, right. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, thanks to Joan for writing in to us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at hackinghumans at com. Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. What do you have for us? Dave, it's that time of
2: year again. My least favorite time of year, tax time, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair most- enough wonderful. T- no, it's not. Not wonderful at all. We all yeah. have to start looking for those tax documents that come in the mail. And we all have to be on the lookout for these scams. And I have a story here from NerdWallet or an article from NerdWallet that is hmm. a uh, financial services company uh, here in the U.S. And they, are, uh, they have a list of the latest IRS scams. And let's just go through this list so that everybody is aware of them. These are going to be calls that come to you With great frequency this year, I predict. Hmm. Uh, We're going to see, we're going to, a lot of people are going to see these kind of calls coming in. Here's the first one We've recalculated your tax refund and you need to fill out this form. You're going to hear somebody say that. The IRS never recalculates your tax refund. That doesn't happen. (laughs) That's entirely up to you as a taxpayer. (laughs) Right. They don't do that for you. Here's another one you need to pay a small fee to get your stimulus check. You don't uh-huh. have to pay any fees to get your stimulus checks. They are either directly deposited or they are mailed to you. Right. Uh, here's one that's great. This is not an IRS scam, but it says we're calling. We're calling from the FDIC, and we need your bank information. Hmm. Okay. So the FDIC is the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation, right. which is a uh, federal organization that insures your deposits at the bank. Yeah. The only time you'll ever need to talk to them is if you have a bank account at a bank that has failed. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the only time you ever need to interact with the FDIC. And that will probably never happen to most people in their lives. Yeah. Uh, it did happen with savings and loans back in the 80s. You remember that, Dave?
0: I do. I, I went to high school with some friends whose families uh, suffered some significant financial loss because of that.
2: Yeah, uh, but that was not the FDIC, though. That was the SFLIC. It was the, the same thing for savings and loans, which were structurally different than banks. Hmm. Do they still have savings and loans? I don't even know if they do. They're know. still around. We're calling to tell you your identity was stolen. You need to buy some gift cards to fix it. This sounds <laughs> ridiculous to you and me, Dave, because yes, we are steeped in this world. <laughs> but there are, the, the reason they, they make these calls is because they work on some people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another one. This one's actually more feasible or at least on its, on its face. We'll cancel your social security number. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. That's, that's scary. You hear that and we're like, Oh, uh, you know, they're going to, They're. Gonna, I need my social security number. You shouldn't cancel <laughs> that. How See, else am I going to get my social security or how disappear. am I going to get my, yeah. Right. Off the grid. Just poof, you're gone. Right. This is the Bureau of Tax Enforcement and we're putting a lien or a levy on your assets. Uh, they will never call you to let you know that they're going to do that you if you're getting a lien placed on your assets you already know uh, you have been talking to people at the IRS you've gotten letters you've gotten uh, all kinds of correspondence from them it's it's you will know if you're going to have a lien these don't show up out of the blue yeah okay all right if you don't call us back you'll be arrested uh, mm, mm-hmm. this is uh, a very common tactic used by these guys here's one that's really interesting. Uh, Number eight on this list. Use this form, W-8-B-E-N, to give us your personal data. So a W-8-B-E-N is a Certificate of Foreign Status of Beneficial Ownership for the United States Tax Withholding. I don't Hmm. know what that means. I'm not an accountant. Uh, But it's a legitimate form from the IRS. But these guys, these guys have altered it so that they ask for a lot more information, including your mother's maiden name, passport numbers, and pins. Oh, wow right? Huh. So, I mean, this is just an identity theft scorecard here, right? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. all this is.
0: But they make it look like a legitimate form.
2: But they make it look like a legitimate form, and they send you an email going, hey, you got to fill this form out, and we're the IRS. Send it right back to me. And, right. Oh, okay. And people do that, and these guys then have access to a lot of things. Yeah. Here is – I'm going to put a couple of these together here. Click here to see some details about your tax refund or to see your tax script or to take this survey, all of these are just malicious links, mm, mm-hmm. right? It's a great way to get like some kind of ransomware on your computer. It don't don't never like we say never click the link. Mm-hmm. And finally, this is a new one, and this one is targeted at uh, a relatively new one. It's only only been around for a couple of years. This one's targeted at the student body of the country. You owe the federal student tax, and you have to pay us for it. Hmm. There is no federal student tax. In fact, there are tax <laughs> breaks for being a student. So, yeah. <laughs> if you're a student, you actually pay less taxes. Huh. There's no no taxes for the. I, I think this preys on students, foreign students in the U.S. Oh, um, who are who are not familiar with the U.S. tax code. You know, pe- mm-hmm. people who didn't grow up in it. Uh, you know, at, at Hopkins we have a a large uh, body of foreign national students, right? Sure. Uh, and a lot of universities have that. Some some universities don't, but a lot of them do, and when you have a a, a college or a, a university that is has a large foreign national student body, you already know that that's a great place to start your phishing attack, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And you can just you know you already and you already know the end of everybody's email address, <laughs> right? right? It's right. it's really easy to determine what their email addresses are.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I guess I mean a lot of these play off of that. Uh, that feeling that people have about the IRS, which is that it is a big government organization that has a lot of power. It has a lot of enforcement power. Uh, right. They can, um, you know, they can make your life miserable. <laughs> if they, they absolutely want. can. If if they, they have want. their
2: own court system for it. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. And uh, – and i think also because you know you sort of mentioned earlier on you said i'm not an accountant well few people are and so right. this is an area where you, it's sort of a double whammy where you have the, the that um that real specter of uh, enforcement but also it's something that people feel like they're out of their element when they're doing you know doing their taxes and they're they're afraid that they're going to make a mistake so there's a lot that goes into this yeah all right, well we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh my story this week comes from uh the folks over at Hitachi ID, which is a security organization. Um and they did a survey about ransomware operators trying to recruit people on the inside of companies. Really? Uh yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about this, Joe. What if someone came okay. to you and said, "Hey Joe, uh yeah. we're going to give you some money, mm-hmm. uh, to provide, uh, and we need your credentials. We need your Hopkins credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, uh, and uh, how, how, much, <laughs> what would your price be, Joe? Oh, okay. So you already know that I have a
2: price. <laughs> well, Joe, my first everybody, question is, everybody has a price. <laughs> my first question is, well, how much money are we talking about here?
0: No, no, Joe. I'm sure an uh, upstanding uh, citizen and loyal employee that you are, you would tell them to go pound sand and you would report them to the the security folks at Hopkins, right? I I would absolutely do that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the,
2: yeah. There's no amount of money that can uh, – well, I, I shouldn't say no amount of money. Um, but actually, first off, this presents so many problems to me. Let, let's say that I am corruptible, right, Yeah. for a yeah. price. And that price is big, right? Because I – I'm going to sacrifice the earning potential I have for the next uh, however many years I'm going to be working, right? 20 years, let's say. And I'm going to essentially sacrifice that by providing it to somebody else. I'm putting that at risk. I mean, maybe I get away with it, but chances mm-hmm. are I won't, right? And uh, because because I'm not that lucky, uh, first off. And <laughs> so the money is going to have to come to me. It's going to have to be significant. And then I'm going to have to launder that money. I, I mean, to make right. it look legit. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, this <laughs> who needs that kind of work, for, right? Right. Who needs that <laughs> kind of headache? I think it's just easier for me to just continue to. First off, you you probably don't have the money to to give to get me to uh, to give you the access. Uh, and and second off. I don't, I don't want that headache. And third off, I'm going to, I'm actually, and this is more, the more important thing. I'm actually going to do what's right here. I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely make a phone call to our security department. And then we're going to make a, a joint contact to, uh, to law enforcement. That's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And maybe I will tell you, oh, sure. I'm interested in this, but, uh, you know, there's going to be other people listening on that phone call.
0: Well, these folks in there, they surveyed, a uh, hundred it and security executives, and they found that, uh, There's been a 17% increase in the number of employees and executives who've been approached by hackers to assist in ransomware attacks.
2: That is interesting. Um,
0: They said the majority of these requests came through emails. Uh, 59% came through emails. Some were made through phone calls, which seems pretty bold to me. Right. Um, 21% arrived uh, via social media messages. But here's the part that uh, is interesting, most uh, or I guess surprising. Uh, Most of the employees were offered more than half a million dollars for assisting the attackers. Some were offered up to a million dollars. Really? We're we're talking real money here, Joe. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I've seen other reports where uh, they've surveyed folks, and and for your, I guess, not executive-level folks and organizations, uh, it was surprisingly low amounts of money that people would be willing to, to, uh, be bribed for, to give up their login credentials,
2: you know, right.
0: like a hundred bucks, you know, somebody walking down the street, give me your username and password. I'll give you a hundred bucks. A surprising number of people would be willing to do that.
2: Right. That seems like a missed opportunity for those people, Dave,
0: because <laughs>
2: they're, they're selling for a hundred bucks, something that's valued at half a million. Right. Um, well, and I don't I, yeah. I digest I mean, of course, but I mean right. it's you're right. You know, if you're if you're a low-level employee, uh you're not that vested in the success of a company, right? Yeah. Um you know, and you may have the feeling that the company's not that vested in your success. And that might be correct. Um you know, this speaks a lot to um corporate culture, I think, and making mm-hmm. sure that uh that people are uh Feel that they're vested in the company and the success of the company as employees. And you know, I mean, I don't want to tell anybody how to run their business, but I think you're better off if you genuinely have concern for your employees than if you than if you treat them like cattle. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this survey also said that forty-nine percent of the organizations who employees had been approached ultimately fell victim to a ransomware attack, although they're they're not sure uh, how many were due to insider attacks. So you know these organizations were in somebody's crosshairs, um, right. and the attempts to go through insiders were part of the way uh, that the the bad guys tried to get in. And half the time, the bad guys were successful. Yeah, um, yeah. To me, this speaks to the need to have uh, things in place. First of all, uh, as you say, you know, treat your employees well so that they're on right. your side and not the bad guys' side. Right. Educate them on Mm -hmm. these sorts of things, Uh, have a, have a way for them to report these sorts of things. I would say have a way to reward them for reporting these sorts of things, right? Make it a, that'd be a a good, good incentivize them to, to report these sorts of things.
2: Change the incentives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But then also have things in place so that if someone does fall victim to this, you have whatever, uh, multi-factor authentication or some sort of zero trust thing, You're, you're limiting their access. Right. Individuals only have access to the things that they absolutely need to have access to, so that if something like this happens, you have multiple layers of uh, defense there to protect yourself. But
2: yeah, kinda. I mean, if you if you're talking about somebody who's doing a, a ransomware operation in a foreign country, right, and you have a hardware key, multi-factor authentication, something like a YubiKey Key or a Google Titan or something like that, uh, this. Kind of attack becomes much more difficult, right? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it becomes now. I don't need your credentials, but I also need your hardware key to get access to it. Well, if I send my hardware key to Russia or right. to <laughs> India or something, I'm not going to be able to work, and I'm going to have to go to IT and say, "I, le- I I've lost my, uh, my I've lost my device." At which case, at which point they deactivated it. They should deactivate it. Yeah. So I mean, multi factor authentication particularly the uh the hardware multifactor authentication goes a long way here yeah. i think that protects you uh, another thing i want to say about this is it's interesting that they're offering 500,000 to a million dollars for this that speaks to to the profits that these guys are making from this mm-hmm. that they're willing to make this kind of an investment in initial access remarkable yeah, yeah. cuz they know they're going to walk away with a lot of money
0: yeah absolutely well do the right thing Resist, yep. resist. <laughs> you don't want, you don't want this kind of trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you said, it's this is it's. Sad. I mean, you can see how it'd be tempting for someone, but it seems to me like you're heading down a, a really bad path, and and uh, it's probably not going to end well for you. So, right. do, do the right thing. Yeah. All right, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes as well. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. <laughs>
2: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Michael who writes, I feel like I have failed in my mission in life. Hmm. Don't feel that way, Michael. <laughs> on the bright side, I just told the CEO of a large organization that she needs to force all of her employees to listen to Hacking Humans from now on. Well, see, there you go. You are a raging success in my book.
0: <laughs> There's an upside, yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> You're a winner, Michael. You're a winner in our book, yeah.
2: Right. All right. <laughs> so... Uh, Michael sends us this uh this text that he got from somebody he knows uh and it's from this is not a scam text this well uh, this is a scam a text about a scam okay uh so Dave I'm going to have you read this it says someone
0: used my name in an email to scam counselors at my office using the gift card scam someone bought $2000 worth and another person fell for it i assume someone hacked something of mine any recommendations on how to tighten up my security or identify scammer? Mm.
2: So this is somebody asking for help from somebody who's in the industry, which is great, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we we all in this industry have to do everything we can to help people understand uh, the nature of the scams that people are going to use to target you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is remarkable that somebody bought $2,000 worth of gift cards in a gift card scam, uh, I would say to this person: Chances are, you didn't get hacked. You you got impersonated. Hmm. I would do an audit of all of the you know just look around your office or look around all of your accounts and see if any of them have uh, been compromised. Look at the emails that were sent to the victims of this scam. And remember that these people are victims of a crime. They're not um, you know they're not stupid. They didn't fall for it because they're dumb. They they fell for it because they're people and they were trying to help what they thought was you out. And these people took advantage of these, these criminals took advantage of that. Right. Um, It's, it's an unfortunate case, but I think, uh, you know, there are much larger losses that could happen here. Uh, Yeah. So I would recommend, definitely recommend social engineering training for everybody uh, at your organization, uh, because this really doesn't target your organization. It targets the employees at the organization, right? These two employees that got scammed out of gift card money spent their own money on that. Hmm. Mm. right? Uh, It's, you know, this is tough.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It says someone used my name in an email to scam folks at the office. Um, I wonder if they just used this person's name. Did they use this person's actual email address? The reason I ask that is because That could be the difference between impersonation and someone, say, credential stuffing to get into someone's email account and actually send emails from their account. So, Yeah, you need need to
2: do an analysis on this to see if these emails were actually sent from your account or if they were just spoofed being sent from your account. Or frequently we see people just open up a Gmail account, change the name on the Gmail account to your name, and then send emails from it. I mean I actually fell for one that was sent – Imperson- by somebody impersonating my boss from some random Gmail account. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I replied to the email and said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the office. I'll be right down.
0: Yeah. So uh, again, uh, if uh, just use multi-factor on all your email accounts. and Right. That will stop anybody to, uh, from getting
2: into them. But it won't stop people from impersonating your email address, though. And it won't stop people from sending in emails from Gmail accounts that they just open up. So that's the only solution there is social engineering training.
0: So if they're using credential stuffing, just, again, a reminder to not reuse the same credentials in multiple mm-hmm, yep. places. Uh, and if you use a password manager, password managers will have your back on this kind of thing. They'll tell you when you're reusing things. They'll tell you when you're logging in to a website that isn't the website you think you're logging into. So – yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> we sound like a broken record sometimes, but there's a reason, and all of those things that we mentioned would help prevent something like this. So, absolutely. Uh, again, thank you for uh, our listener, Michael, for sending that in to us. We would love to hear from you. It's humans at the cyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alan Liska, uh, someone I've known for a while now and have interviewed multiple times. He is uh, a threat analyst over at Recorded Future, uh, also a book author, and his most recent book is titled Ransomware, Understand, Prevent, Recover. Uh, Alan literally wrote the book when it comes to ransomware. So here's my conversation with Alan Liska.
1: I really wanted to get in on the Young Adult Trilogy Thing and hopefully, for a large movie deal, um, you know, with a famous young actor portraying the lead DFIR analyst. So mm-hmm. we have the original book, this book, and then I'm sure in five years I'll do another book because they don't work. Um, you know, no, in, in all seriousness. Sounds <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like a solid plan, Alan. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I got to have a retirement plan somehow. And if it's uh, yeah. a movie studio paying for the rights to my book, great. In all seriousness, I co-authored the book with Tim Gallo uh, back in 2016 and the ransomware kind of market has changed a lot since 2016 and ransomware attacks have changed dramatically. Some of the defenses that are needed have changed. And so I really, really wanted to kind of give an update to, to kind of what's happening and get it in a condensed, understandable format. I really, if any publishers are listening, I really wanted to write a book on the history of ransomware and not have any technical stuff, but nobody hmm. really wants to hear the story of ransomware from me. They just want to know how they can protect themselves from me. So, uh, so this was an option and, and I was really excited and happy to do it in actual tech media and recorded future have been really great, making the book freely available to anybody who wants it. Um, You can also, of course, buy it on Amazon. But if you want the PDF version, it's free to anybody. And I think that's amazing.
0: So what are some of the key things that have changed in between your first ransomware book and this one?
1: Two really big things are... Big game hunting. So instead of, you know, when I wrote in 2016 or when we wrote in 2016, ransomware was single machine, encrypt that machine, and then you're done. It was still a big problem for organizations because they were getting hit a lot. You know, so those single machines kind of added up. Whereas today it's encrypting thousands of machines at the same time. And of course, with that comes a much more hefty ransom involved. And then there's also the idea of that extra extortion, the double and triple extortion of leaking files, which wasn't the case. And I'll also throw in ransomware as a service has made it a lot easier for anybody to kind of get into the ransomware game. Whereas in 2016, you had to have some level of technical skills. Not much, but you had to have some. Now, really, there's handbooks, handbooks. there's guides that are available. Um, you know, ransomware actors brag about how easy their ransomware is to install once you get in the network, and so that really does make a big difference.
0: Yeah, it strikes me how much this uh, vertical, I guess we could call it, has really professionalized itself. That you know, it's it's not just uh, you know the, the the kids in the you know, in the AV club who are doing this. I mean, these are these are serious organizations.
1: Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we talk about the growth of ransomware, it's not just that ransomware itself has gotten bigger, but the ransomware ink, if you will, has gotten bit bigger and that, you know, now you have ransomware groups that hire professional negotiators. Well, not professional. They hire at least English-speaking negotiators, let's say that. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they
1: hire developers to build out their ransomware. They hire initial access brokers to gain that first footing you know, and then buy the access from them. So there's this whole sort of set of cottage industries that have sprung up in support of ransomware. And part of that is just because ransomware makes so much money. Right now, outside of possibly business email compromise, ransomware is the most profitable by far cybercriminal activity.
0: So what has changed then in this updated book in terms of your recommended approaches for people to prevent this and deal with it if they do find themselves falling victim to it?
1: You know, it's funny because some of the things just haven't changed. People just haven't started doing them yet. So, you know, some of the things like you need better asset management, you need better vulnerability management right that that's kind of we've been, you know you've you've been doing this for a long time i've been doing this for a long time we've been saying that for twenty plus years that still is kind of needs to be done. network segmentation that was in the first book, and that's still highly recommended now, um, even more so with uh, you know mass deployment of ransomware. Some of the things that are different though, really focusing on Improving your incident response and disaster recovery plans. So, you know, before your incident response was on a single machine, right? So you can have kind of a loose based incident response or loose based disaster recovery because you were only recovering for one thing. So if it wasn't fully up to date or whatever, it wasn't the end of the world. Now you need an updated incident response plan and disaster recovery plan because you need to take into account the fact that you're not down one machine, but you're down a thousand machines. And how are you going to respond? How are you going to get services back online? How are you going to prioritize that? Especially when once it happens, every other part of your organization is going to tell you that they need to be a top priority. So you you, you need to have that in advance. Ransomware negotiators weren't a thing um, when, uh, when we wrote the last book. So discussing when you need to hire a ransomware negotiator and, you know, if, if you're going to have to pay the ransom, why it's so important to have a good ransomware negotiator in there instead of trying to do it yourself. Double, triple, quadruple extortion wasn't a thing. How to prepare for that, how to, how to handle the fact that you're going to have a whole lot of bad news coming your way, possibly for weeks Or months at a time, depending on, you know, whether you pay the ransom and how long the ransomware actor kind of strings out the release of files. And then, you know, really, uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to protecting your domain controller because that wasn't as big a deal when they're landing on a single machine. Not as big of a deal to have to worry about them getting credentials and getting to the domain controller. But now that's kind of critical to any ransomware operation. So it has to be critical to any ransomware defense.
0: You know, in the past five years, I think it's it's fair to say that more and more of the things we do uh, with our computers have shifted to the cloud. How does that reality affect the ransomware situation? Is it is it a mixed blessing there?
1: You know, it, yes and no, it, it, it depends on your cloud provider because cloud providers are being targeted by ransomware groups. Um, we know that ransomware groups are, you know, have written special versions of their software that target ESXi and Linux. So, you know, even if you have your own internal cloud, you could potentially be vulnerable and ransomware groups love going after ESXi because. They know that they can take down not one server, but they can take down a hundred servers, you know, with one with one ransom. And like with a lot of different ransomware groups, the the decryptors for ESXi, the ESXi variants often suck. And so we've seen some organizations pay the ransom and then find out they can't actually decrypt. Some of their ESXi servers because the images are too big and the ransomware decryptor can't deal with it. And, you know, so, you know, the, the incident response company has to spend hours and hours trying to see if they can rewrite the decryptor, um, in order to get these, deal with these large images. So that is a real, you know, so, so that is a real concern. And that's just internally what happens when they go after your cloud provider, your cloud provider gets encrypted. And we've seen this happen over and over again. And they've got all of your data. Like, you know, your backups are in with the cloud provider. What do you do in a case like that? How, how do you respond to that? And you need to be able to take that into account as part of your planning, knowing, Hey, here's, I have data here, 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 here. And here's what's going to happen if that data gets encrypted. What is my backup plan in those cases? What can I do?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, I remember when ransomware was the new kid on the block that, you know, the, the solid advice was make sure that you have robust backups, make sure you have multiple backups, test your backups. To what degree does that advice still hold up in today's environment?
1: So, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that sort of 3 two, one rule, have three copies, Two copies stored on different media, one of which is offline, is still really important for recovery, but that doesn't take into account the fact that a whole bunch of your data probably has been stolen during the attack. And so Mm. you kind of have to, you you still need the backups, but that can only be one part of the plan. That can't be the full, this is how I recover from a ransomware attack uh, attitude.
0: What about, you know, encrypting your data, you know, keeping stuff that's data at rest, having that encrypted so that if they are able to grab it, it takes away that extortion component. Is that
1: viable? Yes and no. It, it absolutely is viable. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that one of the things that ransomware groups do is when they get in, they they elevate their privileges. They're looking for admin access they're looking for, you know, whether it's local admin or domain admin. And so if they're grabbing your files as, uh, to, to exfil as a domain administrator, they've probably decrypted the files. And so, yes, it helps. And, but, but, but just bear in mind that, that again, just like anything else, that one thing is not a panacea. Those encrypted files may be taken off, um, in an unencrypted format.
0: You know the, the other thing that that I think about when it comes to ransomware is that the headlines have been dominated by these big events, you know, where uh, a healthcare center gets shut down, large dollar amounts, those sorts of things. But I think it's easy to lose sight of to what degree are those smaller attacks still happening for those small small and medium-sized businesses? Have they continued to be the targets to the degree that they were before? Is it still? To what degree are they still under threat, even though they're not getting the attention they might have gotten in the beginning?
1: We're seeing a growth in small and medium sized businesses being hit with ransomware. Um, so, so that 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 is not going down. It's going up. And they tend to be smaller ransom demands, uh, you know, 100,000, which is a lot to a small business, don't get me wrong. But compared to some of the bigger numbers that we've seen, you know, they're they're smaller. The problem is they don't make the news, right? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. even sometimes they don't make local news. Um, And so nobody knows exactly how big that problem is. We're pretty confident that it is a, 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 growing problem, uh, you know, and there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that it is, but without, without public reporting, um, without, uh, you know, any kind of real analysis, it's very hard for us to say for sure how big or, or small the problem is. But part of that is the, you know, the growth in that third and fourth tier of ransomware group that maybe aren't going after the bigger targets. They're going after these smaller targets and getting smaller ransoms. And hoping to fly under the radar, get out of the way of, uh, of of all of the law enforcement agencies that are looking for ransomware groups right now.
0: Where do you think we're headed here? I mean, do you, do you think that um, you know we've seen certainly the beginnings of efforts for diplomatic pressure on some of the, you know the nations that are uh, allowing this to happen within their borders? Do you do you suppose we're going to see more movement there, or uh, are you expecting? for the foreseeable future, more of the same?
1: So I don't think we've seen an impact yet, but I do think the fact that we've seen 16 law enforcement actions this year, in, or in 2021, compared to, you know, not even half that in the previous four years. I think that sends a strong signal to the ransomware groups that we're taking this seriously. We're looking at ways to disrupt it. To the best of my knowledge, it's not having an impact yet, but it's really, really hard to determine that because a lot of what we have are trailing indicators, so you know we know what the ransomware situation looked like last month or you know two months ago, but not necessarily right now today and so what I would say is that we're 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 heading in the right direction, we're definitely seeing with these law enforcement actions we're definitely seeing a lot of a lot of the smaller, those third and fourth tier groups starting to drop out and realize now it's not worth the effort. And and I think we've seen some big wins this year. Like, you know, I I know a lot of people are convinced that Revil and Black Matter will come back after the FBI released Most Wanted posters for them. I'm not so sure that that's true. You know, it's it's one of those things where ransomware operators have been able to operate with impunity for so long that I think, you know, kind of like the... What's the old joke? They, they were, you know, ingesting the smell of their farts or whatever a, a little bit too much. <laughs> right. Where, where they started to believe they were invincible. Mm-hmm. I've worked for intelligence agencies before. When you have now 30 intelligence agencies with a framework for how to find you and how to take you down, even if you're in Russia or one of the other non cooperating countries. You know, it's easy for somebody who's conducting ransomware attacks to avoid scrutiny by a jackass like me. Um, It's much, much harder to avoid scrutiny from 30 intelligence agencies that decided that suddenly you're very important.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, you've made the point uh, on social media, I think only half jokingly, that you know folks should go look at the purchases of exotic automobiles in these countries that there's you could there's a pretty strong dots to connect
1: right exactly i mean they're not subtle with how they spend their money um so yeah. whether it's fancy cars nice houses whatever else that we've seen all of the things that we see when when we do these raids um you know outside of russia when they're in russia they're doing the same thing and so there's a lot that governments who want to track them can track them. And again, I'm not saying that you send in an assassination team or anything like that. I'm absolutely not saying that, but I'm saying if you start producing information saying, hey, here you are, this is you, we know who you are and we're watching you. Maybe that doesn't slow some of them down, but I think for a lot of them, then that starts to change the balance of, okay, maybe this is no longer worth it. Maybe I should take the fact that, Russia is not going to arrest me and just keep the millions I've made and retire. And if mm-hmm. that's you know that's not a great outcome, but if it stops the ransomware attacks, then it's a you know then it's a good enough outcome for us.
0: This being uh, the recorded future podcast, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you: What part does threat intelligence play in an organization's defenses for ransomware?
1: So one of the benefits of the sort of the big game hunting ransomware attacks is that you now have multiple opportunities to stop the ransomware attacker. So you have that initial access, you have while they're moving around the network, you have the data exfiltration, and you even have like, hey, here are the things they're gonna do right before they deploy the ransomware. So you have all of these different ways to detect them, but you need to know what to look for. And that's one of the ways that Recorded Future and other intelligence, you know, providers offer you is, you know, here's the Cobalt Strike things you should be looking for. You know, here are the 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 indicators whether it's IPs, domains, whatever that we're seeing with ransomware groups. Here are the movements. Here's how they move around the network. Here are the tools they use, even when they're living off the land. Like, look for these commands being run. So, really, for that threat hunting mission, threat intelligence can be really important. And then, right now, because so much data is dumped on these ransomware extortion sites, you know, I, I like to say that you know basically every ransomware attack has now become a third party attack because when they're dumping data from a victim organization. They're also dumping all of the information from the organizations that 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 org does business with. And so knowing, hey, have I been caught up in one of these ransomware attacks? And knowing sometimes before the victim will tell you about it can be really important. So kind of understanding that and that allowing you to prepare for that kind of, which is an unfortunate eventuality.
0: What do you hope people take away from the book? Someone who's uh, finished reading it, what are the take-homes there that you're looking for?
1: So I think the big thing is, you know, you know, a a few things. One, you're going to be more successful in recovering from a ransomware attack if you prepare for it. If you have an honest assessment of kind of what your weaknesses are and are prepared for those weaknesses, even if you can't do anything to remediate them at that time. I'm reading a great book right now called The Scout Mindset. That, that talks about you know the scout versus the soldier mindset. It's really fascinating. And I, I keep relating that back to preparing for a ransomware attack where too many organizations are like, no, no, we're good. We have everything covered and don't want to have that honest assessment. You need to have that honest assessment ahead of time so that you can properly prepare. And then when you start the recovery process, should that come along, you'll, you'll know what you need to do.
2: Joe, what do you think, Dave? The ransomware game really has changed and evolved over the past half a decade or so. This is one of the things I was talking about at a conference last year or the year before—I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may have been two years ago. COVID has absolutely shortened my time memory. It's right—I <laughs> I have absolutely no idea when things happen. Uh, but you know, th- these things have gone from uh, from low level attacks against individuals up to large organizations being targeted. This big game. Hunting, as Alan calls it, mm-hmm. uh, it has become a huge criminal industry. Huge, um, so much so that they're hiring all over the place. Yeah. You know, we are, your your story was a great example about the the magnitude of this industry. Mm. It's uh, in terms of uh, losses, it goes B E C and then ransomware. Uh, you know, B E C is a highly targeted, focused attack that really relies on really good social engineering. Uh, ransomware has a lot more of a technical angle to it, but, you know, these guys have people to handle it, you know? Yeah. So what, what do people do? Prevention is a big deal. I mean, Roger Grimes was talking about that on our show last week, right? And here, Alan is talking about the same kind of things and prevention is still the same issues. Alan is saying about, uh, it's still the basics. We're not doing things like asset management, vulnerability management, network segmentation, you know, those kind of things when you don't do them have huge impacts. Um, yeah. You know, a, a ransomware attack used to be just an incident. Now it's a disaster, right? It's something that merits a disaster recovery plan. And that has to be good. Also, that has to not be just sitting on your computers because if it is, chances are it's going to be encrypted. Right? You better <laughs> right, print that right. thing out. Have it sitting on your shelf. Right. Alan mentioned ESXi and a lot of our listeners are may not be technical listeners. Uh, so uh, let me explain what ESXi is. It's an operating system by VMware That is their server-based operating system. Mm. Uh, So when you want to build a massive machine that's going to host a lot of these virtual machines, uh, you're going to use an operating system like ESXi. There are other things out there. They're called hypervisors, but it's the server OS. And if you can encrypt one ESXi machine, right, one of these machines running this operating system, you can literally encrypt hundreds of virtual machines at once. Hmm. I mean, that can destroy somebody. Yeah. Uh, There was a company. I can't remember the name of the uh, of the company. It was a a source source code uh, management provider that I had a small business with, and we had our code with this company. And these guys got hacked in. uh, Somebody got their Amazon cloud credentials. It wasn't it wasn't a ransomware attack. It was a a wiper attack. And they they threatened these guys with ransom, and uh, saying we're going to delete your delete your products there and. They didn't pay the ransom, and these guys just deleted everything, including the source code for my company from the repository. Now, we all had backups of it, so it was okay. Wow. But um, that company was gone. That company was shut down and destroyed in one day by mm-hmm. a malicious actor who just had access to their cloud resources. Uh, yeah. Imagine having your all your virtual machines in a, in, a, in a cloud encrypted. Uh, and not being able to get it back. And the great part about this, according to Alan, is that the decryptors, in his words, suck for ESXi. <laughs> <laughs> They're not good decryptors, you know, because right. ESXi is not Windows. It's not, it, it, I mean, I think it's a Linux variant, right? I, I'm not exactly sure about it, but it's its own operating system that requires its own development skills. Mm-hmm. And a lot, and, you know, that may be lacking in the in this economy of ransomware. It might not mm-hmm. be there. Uh, big targets make make big news. Small targets don't. You know, when I talk about uh, when I give talks to people about cybersecurity and why they should be concerned, even though they're a small company, I don't uh, I talk about, you know, I ask people, tell me some of the data breaches and they all name all the big data breaches. But, you know, nobody ever mentions the Broadway Deli, which was a small business uh, out in California, I think, that was actually absolutely shut down because of uh, lawsuits that followed from a credit card breach that they had. They Mm, were a small mm -hmm. business and couldn't couldn't. Stand that onslaught of lawsuits. They filed for bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, so I mean, these—that's these, what happens to small businesses when they get hit by these these things. They don't d- recover. They just shut down.
0: Yeah. Saw a similar one. I remember a couple years ago. It was a small uh, doctor's office. A small group mm-hmm. of doctors, half a dozen doctors or so. They got hit by ransomware, and the best pathway for them was to simply shut down the practice. Right. Uh, yeah. A lot of those doctors
2: did. retired. Right.
0: Yep, yep that's and what they did. They just
2: said you know what this is this is the impetus we need to finally just go on and and retire. Yeah. Which it's a shame, you know. It's absolutely a shame that this happens. Uh one of the things that does give me a ray of hope in this is uh I like what Alan says here 30 intelligence agencies make a good task force for finding these guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know and that that's an excellent point where well, you know I I have a lot of pessimism when it comes to bringing these guys to justice particularly when they live in countries that uh will not extradite people to us or maybe do do not have the infrastructure to do so um but when you think about the full weight and and observation power of uh not just American but also like British and five eyes uh intelligence agencies if they if and they're starting to take this threat a lot more seriously because it is becoming such a large international problem uh and I like that Alan is optimistic that people like evil are not coming back, that they're just going to take their money and sit there and enjoy it Maybe yeah. do something else. Okay. Uh, I agree. That's not an ideal situation, but no more ransomware is a good thing.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, our thanks uh, once again to Alan Lisko for joining us. Always a pleasure to chat with him. He is from Recorded Future. We do appreciate him taking the time for us. Again, the title of the book is Ransomware, Understand, Prevent, Recover. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.